we are launching into this Advent season, and for these next four weeks, we're going to talk about Christmas. And, um, you know, you're wondering, like, hey, is there anything new that we can learn about Christmas? <laughs> what, what do we, oh, we kind of already know everything there is to know. But there's, guys, it's, it's like a diamond. There's so many facets to it. We're never going to get to the bottom of it. And so uh, as, a, as a pastor, as a communicator, I'm always working hard to try to, you know, just, just mine some of those things. And, and so I'm excited for this morning because I'm kind of going in a direction I've never gone before. Uh, but for centuries, Christians have celebrated Advent. Um, it's this, supposed to be this season of hope and expectation. The word Advent means arrival or the coming of something. And so we are, we are celebrating in, this, in these four weeks where we're anticipating the arrival of Jesus. And so, you know, like uh, that happens with a lot of things. I've noticed that this last week, I don't know if you noticed this, but we were sort of celebrating the, uh, the advent of snow. You guys notice that we do this here in Eugene? So like whenever there's like slightly any sort of chance of snow on the forecast, it's like we're going through Advent together because everybody's like, are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? Have you got all the stuff? Like, did you hear that it's going to snow on Friday? No, I heard it was going to snow on Thursday. Well, it's definitely going to snow on one of those. And then, you know, we just, and it's like, like strangers in the grocery store. I mean, it's like you just are like, I heard it's going to snow. I know, right? It's like it's totally going to. And so people are talking about it all over the place. My favorite living in Eugene is when it does actually snow and when you turn on the news. Isn't it hilarious when you turn on the news? Because here in Eugene, whenever it snows, you turn it on and it's like, it's chaos out here. And it's been snowing for like eight seconds, you know? And then you're like, and so Frank, well, how's it going for you? And Frank's like, oh, I'm over here in West Eugene and it's snowing here too. And then it's like, hey, let's go to Bob in the South Hills. And Bob's like, oh, it's snowing here too. And, uh, you know, people are just get all crazy. And you guys know all the people like fr- that moved here from the Midwest or those places, you just shake your heads at us. You're like, you guys have no idea what snow is, all right? Um, but it's like this whole week, you know, people have been talking about, oh, when's the snow coming? And it's a perfect example of like what, an, what Advent is supposed to be like for us. It's like, is it like, man, this is interesting. It's exciting. And so this season of Advent through the centuries has been this season where we kind of anticipating the coming of Jesus. But we're kind of like, a, it's like a double Advent for us. Because we're kind of in between Advents, which is kind of fun. It's interesting. Is, is we're, we're remembering that Jesus came to Bethlehem. But Jesus, Jesus already came to Bethlehem once. And so we're kind of stuck in between two arrivals where we're remembering that arrival. But we're also waiting expectantly for the arrival to come one day. When Jesus doesn't come to Bethlehem again, when he comes in his fullness to the whole entire world to dry every tear from every eye to bring his kingdom. And so when we're walking through Advent, we're supposed to be thinking about Christmas, but we're also supposed to be thinking bigger about the coming Advent of our Lord and King when he comes again. So it's like a double meaning. Um, Did you guys ever take those family pictures? Um, I don't know if they do this anymore, but family pictures where you uh, you go to like JCPenney or or wherever and, and they have these like the backdrops that pulls down behind you. And so you can pick, you can pick like what season you want your picture to be in. Like, do you want to be in the Caribbean for your picture? Or do you want to be in like snowy winter for your picture? Um, And I feel like what happens with this season for all of us is that this Advent season, because of all the craziness with, with, you know, all the consumerism stuff and all all the business that comes with it, sometimes I feel like we walk into the season and it's like we pull down the Christmas background and then we do our Christmas stuff and we decorate our house and then when Christmas is over, then we just sort of pull the, the shade back up and then we go down to our normal lives. And what Advent's supposed to do is it's supposed to slow us down and it's supposed to help us remember that Christmas really isn't supposed to be a season for us. It's supposed to be 
like a lifestyle. And some of you were like, oh, I would love for that to be my lifestyle. Because, you know, you would like be drinking your hot buttered rum like all, week, all year long, you know. But, but it's supposed to, Christmas isn't supposed to be just like, hey, we step into this season for just a little bit and then we kind of step out and we go back to our normal lives. Advent slows us down and it pushes us to a place where we're supposed to step into the season and remind our hearts that this is the reality of our whole entire lives. That our whole year is, is, is informed by this beautiful promise of something that happened in history. Jesus came in the flesh to be with us um, and has so many implications. Um, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder of kind of like the history of some Christmas stuff. First of all, um, especially I've got kids, a lot of us have kids, and some of, sometimes people ask me, what am I supposed to tell my kids about Santa? Listen, I'm not here to tell you what you're supposed to tell your kids about Santa, all right? I just know what we told our kids about Santa. And for, for us, we kind of leveraged it on this. We said, you know, St. Nicholas, before he was St. Nicholas, he was just a guy named Nicholas, and he was a real person. He was born in 270 um, AD in modern-day Turkey. He was a Greek Christian. He later became a bishop. And he, uh, his, parents left, his parents died, and his parents left him a lot of money as a young man. And he could, could have gone either way with all of that money. He could have kept it all for himself and been real selfish with it. But, but Nicholas was known for his generosity. And he was especially known to, for his generosity towards children. And oddly enough, I learned this this week, his generosity towards sailors. Okay, so uh, that's St. Nicholas. And later on, he became, you know, canonized in, in the Catholic Church as a, as a saint. But, uh, but he was known for his generosity. And, uh, and so, you know, people, you know, and he died on December 6th, the year 343. And people celebrated his birthday on December 6th for a, a lot through the Middle Ages. And then, you know, eventually those things kind of blended together, as like a lot of things that have happened with Christmas. Like I was reading in German, the, the word Christkindl means Christ child. Christ, Christkindl means Christ child, but then it kind of just morphed into Kris Kringle, you know? Um, but it, its roots are in, you know, deep Christian roots of acknowledging that Christ is our king. And so I just kind of feel like if St. Nick were to know that Christmas has become, in, mo in a lot of cultures, all about him and not about Jesus, he'd be horrified. <laughs> he'd probably be horrified because uh, St. Nicholas was a Christ follower and he loved Jesus. And, uh, but today I want to talk, um, talk about how crazy it is, how crazy it is that we're celebrating Christmas at all. And how improbable that we're even talking about this right now in a gym, in a public school in the year 2019. And I want to do that by, talking, by taking a deeper look at the reign and rule of two kingdoms. The kingdom of King Herod and the kingdom of King Jesus. We're going to look at two kingdoms. And uh, guys, this is going to feel a little bit, the, the first part's going to be me teaching, and then the last part is me preaching, okay? <laughs> so first part's teaching, last part's preaching, just a heads up. Um, but uh, but I'll, I'll, I, uh, I was reading this book over these last few weeks called Herod the Great, and learned a ton, and I'm excited to share some stuff with you. And I've got pictures. I brought pictures for you, okay? So yes, thank you, Diane. I appreciate that. Um, it, it's got to start with a timeline because it starts with this guy named Julius Caesar. Caesar, can we put this timeline up here? Uh, Julius Caesar, uh, you guys know of Ju Julius Caesar if you know about Shakespeare. You know, there's, uh, there's a famous play, Et tu Brutus, Shakespeare, or, uh, Julius Caesar was murdered. He was stabbed. 
So there's a Shakespeare play about that. But he's murdered in 44 BC, and then Caesar Augustus, his nephew, is crowned and deified. I'll get back to that later. And then Herod is put in charge of Judea. Um, Sorry, that's spelled wrong. Judea, and he was called king of the Jews. And then we have the birth of Jesus right here in these first three years. Um, A lot of people are not sure if actually he was born on year zero or maybe like one, two, or three. It's somewhere in that that realm. So it might actually be 2000. 17 right now, <laughs> and, uh, and we wouldn't even know. Um, and then the death of Herod, and then the crucifixion of Jesus. But back here, um, something really interesting happened in the timeline of, of, of Rome here. Julius Caesar it was the king of Rome, um, but up until that point, Caesars at that time weren't like, they weren't considered gods. But something happened, which was really interesting. So uh, Julius Caesar dies, he's murdered. And then there's a couple months later, they're having this big like celebration for his life. And there happened to be a, a huge comet that was going through the sky at that time. Really, really big comet. And, and so uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, he's just about to become the, the Roman emperor now. He takes advantage of this moment in history. And he says, oh, do you know what that is? That's Julius Caesar ascending to his, his throne in the sky. Because he's, because he's a god. That's, that's him ascending. And, so, and, and you can see there's a coin that was circulated at this time with, uh, with a picture of Julius Caesar. And then right here, guess what that is? That's the, that's the comet. That's the star. And this like divus, it, it, you know, whatever that is in that language, it means, the, it means you know, Julius the god, the divine Julius. And so these coins were in circulation at the time. And so people bought it. They believed it. Oh, Julius is, is, is God and he's ascending to his throne in heaven. And so then Caesar Augustus shows up and he says, he says, and you know, if, if like, if my uncle was God, then that means I'm like, I'm like the son of God. So here I am. You are so lucky to have me as emperor, everybody. And so from that point on, people are like, oh, Caesar Augustus, he's the son of God. And people refer to him as the son of God. And so he's got all this power now. And what actually Caesar, Julius, or sorry, Caesar Augustus does, and he, he ushers in the, the Pax Romana, the, the, the golden age of Rome. And he does all sorts of incredible things and, brings, and he brings a lot of safety and stability, but he also goes and conquers a lot of people. And here's what the Romans did. They would go conquer some people and they would let them keep some of their local customs because they were smart. They knew that if they blew in and just took away all their local, local customs and stuff that people would, um, people would revolt more easily. And so they said, hey, you can keep some customs as long as you just pay us taxes. So pay us a ton of taxes. And then they were really smart too. They didn't just take one of their rulers and plop them in into these, into these countries that they were t- occupying. What they would do is that they would find a local person, somebody from that country and they would pay them a lot of money and get their allegiance and then they would put them in charge so that they would rule some of their own people. And so um, Caesar Augustus is looking around and he has his eye on this young, this young up-and-coming leader uh, named Herod. But there was one problem. Um, there's a problem because in this one particular area, the Romans always encountered this really bothersome, troublesome group of people called the Jews. And the Jews would just had this crazy idea that, that Caesar Augustus isn't God. No, no, no. He's, he's not God at all. He's just a man. And like that we actually know who the real God is. And that from our family, from our country is going to come like the ruler of all the nations. 
And they just had this crazy idea that the, that the Jews weren't going to be uh, oppressed anymore and that they're, and that, you know, and so whenever like some sort of like pesky thing, like, I don't know, say an empire would come and just take over their land, there would always be tons of opposition. And the Romans were always frustrated with these Jews and Judea. I've got a map um, of, of the region right here, just so you can be familiar with all these places that we're talking about that are real places. I want you to take note, there's Jerusalem in the middle. Bethlehem is really close. Um, uh, far away. We're going to talk about Masada in a few minutes, so that's going to come into play at the bottom. Also, there's this place, Caesarea, up there that we're going to talk about. Uh, but this is all the place where all this is taking place. And Caesar Augustus sees this young leader named Herod, and he says, I am putting you in charge. Um, and the, he puts Herod in, Herod in charge in the year 37 BC. The Roman, Herod's there in Rome and the Roman Senate crowns him and calls him the king of the Jews. They crown him king of the Jews and they send him back to Jerusalem. Um, but, uh, but there's a problem. They get back to Jerusalem and the people don't want to give up Jerusalem. The Jews don't want to give up Jerusalem. Herod is a, is a Jew, but he's a half Jew. All right, so um, he's kind of like mixed blood. And so the, the, uh, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, they don't recognize him as, as a legitimate leader. And so they're frustrated. And so here comes Herod with a huge Roman army and they, see, they, they besiege the city of Jerusalem. They surround it. Nothing could go in or out. And they end up figuring out a way to climb over the walls. They get in. Remember, this is like Herod's uh, sort of inauguration as the king of the Jews. And here he comes. He climbs the walls with his army into Jerusalem. And uh, historians think they probably killed tens of thousands of people in the streets. They would corral them into these little alleyways, men, women, and children. And they, he would, they would chop them up and leave them in the road. And Herod then goes to the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling kind of group of, of Jewish leaders. There's 70 of them, and he kills 46 of them, the 46 that aren't on board with his leadership, because no one will stand against me. No one will stand against my kingdom. No one is going to top me. And this is the place, this is around the time where Herod starts calling himself Herod the Great. <laughs> and people around don't think he's so great. <laughs> And he's a little bit insecure, so he's going to prove to them that he is great. This is Herod the Great, and he's going to prove that he's great. Um, people, um, and so here's a couple things about his family. He had 11 wives and 43 children. Um, not 11 wives at the same time. These are 11 separate wives at separate times. Um, he got divorced a lot, and then he all, some of them died. Um, one of them, one of his wives, uh, her name was Mary Amney. It was his favorite wife. Uh, he loved her tremendously, but he was always suspicious that she was trying to jockey to get one of her kids onto the throne to replace Herod. And so Herod was so insecure about all that that he kills her. He has her killed. He kills several of his kids. Um, he invites one of his trusted advisors up to Jericho. And Jericho at that time was kind of like the Sun River of Jerusalem. <laughs> it was like the place where you would go uh, to, uh, you know, to kind of like have a vacation. He invites one of his trusted advisors up to his, to his summer home and he drowns him in his pool. Um, this is like, this is definitely Game of Thrones stuff right here. Um, and uh, the Emperor Augustus reportedly quipped this is, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Which is kind of funny because Herod is a half Jew, so Herod doesn't eat pork. And so the, whole, the point is, is man, it, it's, it's better to be a pig in his household because you're safe. But if you're a son, you're not safe because he's so insecure. Nobody's going to take over my rule. 
It's reported that he possibly was one of the richest people to ever live. Um, At one point, he had 500,000 people on his payroll. 500,000. To put that in perspective, Amazon right now has about 640,000 people on their payroll. Um, he, He did all sorts of things. He funded the Olympic Games. People would come from all over the world at that time for the Olympic Games. And so people all over the world knew who Herod was. And they were beginning to think, wow, this guy might actually be great. He was great because he was a visionary. He was, in fact, historians believe that maybe Herod was one of the most ambitious builders to have ever lived. Uh, Herod's building projects were were unmatched in his day. And still today, you can go to places um, in this region and see some of the things that he built. Here's a couple things. Uh, First is there's this town on the, well, so, you know, Herod wants to impress Caesar. He wants to be in power. He wants to be in control. And he knows he can only be in control um, if he has control of some of the shipping lanes. The problem with where he is in Jerusalem is there's no great seaports. And so he doesn't have a big, a big navy and he can't like you know, import, export a lot. And so he goes and he finds this place on the coast and it's actually a marsh. It's just a bog. No, no ships could come in at this place. But Herod looks at it and says, I'm going to turn this into the greatest port city that the world has ever seen. And so he does. They drain the marsh. They drain the bog. He imports this special concrete from Italy and figures out this way to pour the concrete down under the water to build out. He builds sewer systems that drain out with the tide. He, he, he does all this crazy stuff, and then he names the city Caesarea so that he can impress Caesar. You see what he's doing? Um, hey, Caesar, uh, I'm your guy, and so here's a city that I'm building. It's going to be a great city, and I'm going to name it after you. Um, he builds this he builds his, uh, his palace out onto the water, and he doesn't like sea, salt water, seawater, so he build, actually builds a freshwater pool out in the salt water, out in the ocean at his palace. Um, I got some pictures. You could go there to Caesarea today, and uh, it kind of looks like this. It's all kind of broken down. Next, next slide. Um, this is an aerial view of what it, what it looked like. There's parts that are out there in the water that are g- missing now, but this would have been a huge, huge seaport, and he built this huge amphitheater and all sorts of things. This is what um, artists, uh, artist rendering thinks that the place might have looked like. Um, next slide. Might have looked like this. Um, in its heyday, maybe 200,000 people from a tiny fishing village where Herod looked at it and says, that's going to be a city right there. Um, if you know, I don't know if you noticed, but over there on the side, there's this really long kind of track thing. You see that? Do you ever see Ben-Hur? Have you seen Ben-Hur? You know where they're, uh, they're riding the, the, chariot, the chariot race, you know? So he builds this, he, call, he calls it the Hippodrome. He builds this Hippodrome there. I think the next slide, there's a picture of, of the, uh, the ruins of this place. Um, it's said that this place could have seated 30,000 people when it was, when it was at, its, at its heyday. And people came from all over uh, to, uh, to experience, experience the, uh, the, uh, the spectacle. Um, another thing, too, is this place didn't have fresh water, and so we had to build aqueducts. Can I get these next? This, here's a picture of the aqueduct that's still there today, maybe the, the next slide, too. Um, he builds these, and there's the closest fresh water is about six miles away, but six miles is pretty far if you have to build all that. But here's what's fascinating, is that for every meter that the aqueduct went, it had to drop one centimeter because it had to you know, be at a slope, right, for the water to get to where it needs to be. Um, so six miles, every meter, it drops a centimeter. And to this day, to this day, that aqueduct is just one centimeter off. No equipment, you know, no, you know, no technology. I mean, but it was a, it was a feat of brilliance. 
And this aqueduct right here continued to bring fresh water to this city for the next 1,200 years. Herod was a player. He was a player. Um, the next thing that he did is he built this really big palace for himself called the Herodium. You see, notice a theme, right? He's naming places uh, for uh, important people. Uh, so, you know, here's a picture of this, this palace today. It's, it's, you know, there's, if you were to go up that, that hill, which, by the way, is a hill that they built, there's not a lot of mountains out there. And so Herod says, I want a palace, but I want it on a hill. So, so he has literally a huge hill built, and he builds this huge palace on top, um, and, uh, and, you know, fresh water, again, from all sorts of places. Here's what an artist rendering might have, might have thought that it look, looked like in his day. It was, it was the, the third biggest palace standing in existence um, at this time. Herod um, was serious. The next place is this place that you, maybe you've heard about called Masada. There's something that happened later on in Jewish history uh, in Masada. But, can't, but, uh, but Herod built this place, Masada, um, and he builds it in a place. In fact, maybe we could see that first slide of this place, Masada. It's right, it's, it's on a huge, huge cliff. It's a three-tiered, three-tiered uh, fortress at the top of this really, really big mountain. And Herod builds it here because King David, Israel's like best, best, greatest king from the Old Testament um, it is at one point in David's story is hiding in the mountains from King Saul. And this is probably the place where David was hiding in a cave from King Saul. And so Herod says, if King David is a great king and he lives in a cave in the mountains, I'll show you what a really great king lives in. And so he builds this, this fortress here. It's a little bit Minas Tirith esque you know uh Minas Tirith sorry you know from Lord of the Rings it's like kind of like got that that crazy thing there with the three tiers there's another picture here it's just like it's just huge I've never been able to go I'm, I'm so excited to go to these places I've never been before um next slide um this is this is a better picture of just like the the ruins on top there's cisterns there that can hold so much water that it can that a thousand people could survive there for 10 years because it held so much water. It had hot and cold water. He's piping in that water through aqueducts from 19 miles away. Just incredible, incredible feat. Here's what um, artists think that maybe it looked like um, in, its, in its heyday there on the mountain. David is, or sorry, uh, Herod the Great is trying to make a point. I am better than David. I am greater than David. Um, the next probably biggest building project that Herod did was in, back in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, King uh, Solomon had built the temple in Jerusalem, the, the high holy place. And, but it had gotten, you know, sacked and destroyed several times. And so Herod says, Herod says uh, you know, Solomon had a temple. You just wait and see the temple that I'm going to build. And so Herod um, hires 18,000 people to build it. It takes 46 years. Um, here's maybe of what some of the temple looked like when Herod was done with it. It was massive. It was incredibly massive. These are the courts, the, the courtyard areas. This is, would, be, would have been the place where there are money changers, where Jesus would have come in and where we, he saw people being taken advantage of. And so Jesus tosses over the tables and, you know, makes a whip and says, get out of my... So this would have been, these courtyards out here would have been the place where that was happening. Next, next slide, if you could. Um, this is a, a rendering. This is like a, a model of what it looked like. This, this temple courts area is the size of 46 football fields right there in the middle there. It's just huge, incredible. Next slide, there's a, a kind of like a further out picture of just the massive scale, these walls that Herod is building, this incredible, incredible temple. 
that he was building. Um, I actually, next slide, I saw that uh, a lot of people like to build Herod's Temple with Minecraft. So anyways, there's a lot of uh, Herod Temple Minecraft projects out there. Who knew? Um, and he builds, he builds the temple. He builds the temple with these stones called ashlar stones. He gets them from a quarry outside the city, and then they haul them in. And when they bring them in, and because it's a holy site, you can't like chip away at the rocks there on the site. So you have to, you have to chip away the blocks from far away, and then you have to literally bring them in into the city. Um, and they still to this day fit to perfection. Um, and, uh, and here's a, here's a picture of Jerusalem today. This is a modern day picture of Jerusalem. And right over here is the, the, the Western wall, the wailing wall where people go to pray. This is one of the, the last remaining sort of, uh, uh, area of Herod's temple that he built that's still intact today because the city was destroyed in, you know, just completely destroyed in the year 70 AD. Um, and so next, next slide, there's a picture of, there's a picture of this, this wall. And then if we go to the next slide too, there's a picture of these, of these stones. And it's hard to describe how massive these stones are, but um, the largest stone there is, is 41 feet long, it's 10 feet high and seven feet deep, and it weighs 570 tons, which is about 1.25 million pounds. And it's report, it's, it's the, this, that stone there in Jerusalem is the largest object that a human has sort of made and transported without the, the, the need for machinery. It's the largest thing that's, that's, been, that's been transported. Just to put it into perspective, um, you, know those, you know those pyramids in Egypt? Yeah, those stones are about 15 tons. And these stones are upward of 500 tons. Most of them are about 400 tons. And it took about 2 million of them to build the temple in Jerusalem. Herod wants everyone to know, I am great. I am better than David. I am better than Solomon. My kingdom will have no end. By the way, this is the temple. This is the temple that, remember, Jesus, in his last few days of his life, he's in Jerusalem. He looks up at the temple, and he says, hey, tear down that temple in three days, and God will rebuild it. Or tear, tear that temple down and God will rebuild it in three days. And, they're just, and Jesus is like talking about himself. He's foreshadowing his death and resurrection. But they're like looking at these ashlar stones in this huge Her Herod's temple. And they're like, Jesus, what are you talking? You're crazy, Jesus. Like you can't compete with this kingdom. I mean, like look at this. What are you talking about? And so it's in this context then. Herod, the great, the master builder, the ambitious leader, the wealthy man that everyone in the world knows about. It's in this context then. Now, I want to read to you Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, the very beginning of Jesus' story, the very beginning of this Christmas story. Here's, here's the scripture, and let me read it to you. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. King of the Jews. Herod is thinking, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm crowned king of the Jews. When, Herod, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. This is an understatement. He is disturbed. He is threatened. 
He'll kill sons if they threaten him. And here's this other person that's said to come that's going to be king of the Jews. Oh, no. And then all the, and it says that all of the rest of Jerusalem is disturbed. And who are these people? Well, these are the, the elites, the people that have control, the people who have aligned themselves with King Herod, the, who, who are on his payroll. And so they're threatened as well. A new king? And when he had called together all the, people, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And so they quote, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And when Herod called, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he says, Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt. And they left for Egypt where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted or bamboozled by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the, from the Magi. This is the part that you'll never see in a Christmas play. <laughs> this, is, this, is called, this is historically called the slaughtering of the innocents. This is King Herod so threatened by a new king, so threatened by another kingdom that he goes and kills all the... Imagine, imagine Bethlehem in this time. Imagine the horror of it. Imagine. I can't imagine. And uh, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard from Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up. And he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Um, hey Jenny, will you come up and uh, I'm just going to close but uh, I, I, what I take from this, when I just read, when, when you get the context of Herod's kingdom and then this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing, you just get the sense that Jesus isn't coming to pull the backdrop down behind our lives to give us just a little bit more good cheer for a month. Uh, Jesus isn't here just to help us hear those sleigh bells ringing, jingling too, you know? 
That Jesus isn't coming just to kind of like uh, give us some like nostalgic, nostalgic like warm fuzzies uh, with chestnuts roasting on the open fire. As great as all those, all those things are, as, ex- as exciting as all those things are, that's not what Jesus is here, is here to do. That Jesus is literally coming and he's bringing, he's bringing a subversive kingdom. He's bringing a new kind of kingdom. That he's showing us what it looks like that he's born in the context of empire. And he's, and, he's, and, it's, and he's bringing the threat of hope. He's, he's bringing hope to people who are born under the opposition, uh, under the oppression of Herod, all the people who are just drowning under the taxes that he was creating, just their lives that were just being pressed down and persecuted. And he's also bringing a threat to those people who have aligned themselves with Herod, that have made their lives be about his kingdom and his glory and honoring him. And so Jesus is coming not to bring warm fuzzies, but he's actually bringing like the threat of hope. He's bringing, a, he's bringing the subversive kingdom that's about to take root. And it's vastly different kind of kingdom than Herod had built. And so I just wanna ask you, if you were living in the first century, um, what kind of kingdom would you put money on? If you were a betting person in the first century, wh- what kingdom would you bet on? Would you bet on the kingdom of King Herod ruling and reigning for centuries? Or would you bet on Jesus. And just to give you some perspective, remember everybody knew about Herod, nobody knew about Jesus. Jesus showed up, he, he, he was born in obscurity, he lived in poverty, he didn't build anything except for maybe some cabinets and some furniture perhaps. <laughs> Jesus didn't do any of the things that Herod did. And so if you, were, if you were a betting person, who would you bet money on? I guarantee where most of us would put our money and we would be wrong if we put our money on King Herod. Let me show you a picture. This is, uh, this is King Herod being, being crowned. Uh, this is a painting of, of Herod being crowned in Rome, being called King of the Jews. You know how old Herod is when he is crowned King of the Jews in 37 AD or 37 BC? He is 33 years old. And here's the next picture. Here's King Jesus with a sign over his head that says, king of the Jews. You know how old Jesus is when he is enthroned onto the cross? Probably 33. So if you were to put money down, which one? Next slide. What would you, what would you pick? Which one? Which one? And so I just find it is so incredibly fascinating and hope-filled and, and just fills my life with with like, a, with like a gospel kind of cheer that here we are in the year 2019 in a, in a public school gym and we are worshiping King Jesus. We're worshiping King Jesus. To me that is incredible that we get to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus that's increasing all over the world. We look right now in Western culture and it's like, oh, is the church shrinking? But man, you look in places like China, the church is exploding. You look in places like South Korea, the church is exploding. You look at places like Cuba, there's, there's revival all over the world, places in Africa, South America, everywhere. And, and in the United States, the kingdom of God is rolling ahead. The kingdom of Jesus will not be quenched. And I guarantee you that hardly any of us here knew anything about Herod the Great before we showed up the day, today. You didn't know anything about him. 
That's because he doesn't win. And so that's what's so beautiful is we get to now, we get to look back in history and we get to look forward in history and we get to say, my money is on Jesus Christ, of whom it's prophesied from Isaiah. For, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is Christmas. This is Advent. Let it shake you. Let it, let, it, let, it, let it go to the depths of your alliances and your allegiances and just where, where you spend your time and your money. Everything about you, this is a new kingdom that Jesus has brought. Amen?